Thank you guys so much. So I came across a, uh, an article this week, and the title got my attention. The title was, it said, so many museums are filled with fake paintings. I was like, okay, interested in that. Uh, I don't do a ton of art museums, but living in Northern Virginia for 12 and a half years, there are a ton of opportunities in that area close to D.C. to look at some amazing and priceless, historical, one-of-a-kind works of art, maybe. Because here's what it says. It says, now this is a study that was based in the UK, which is also known uh, for having incredible museums and art and all those kind of things. But that the Independent, which is a a newspaper there, found this, that up to 20% of art in major British museums might be fake. Now, I don't know how, if you're like a statistics study survey guy, if you throw might in there, you add a little bit of question to your, your statistics. But let's assume 20%. And there are others that feel like that's not just in the UK, but across just the world that about 20%, some say up to at times 50% of the artwork that are hanging in museums aren't actually the authentic ones that were painted or created. They are fakes or forgeries. And it told the story of a small art museum in southern France that spent $190,000 uh, on an art collection by Etienne Terreur. I'm probably going to say that wrong. I don't speak French, but I looked it up, and that was the best that Google could do. And it says this, that after a forensic study, when they brought somebody in to kind of revamp their, uh, revamp their, their exhibit, that 82 of the 140 paintings the museum had purchased in the collection were fakes. 190,000, and of that, they closed and reopened with half of what they thought they really had. And what you find out is that it's not uncommon, according to this article, for even the biggest museums to be tricked once in a while by inauthentic works of art. And and the quote stood out to me that says this, the truth of the matter is that it's really hard to tell the difference between fake and real without an extensive forensic study combined with the keen eyes of a panel of experts. Like, you know, it is brought back to me, authenticity matters. You know, for this one museum, you know, inauthenticity, right? A lack of authenticity costs them a lot of wasted money. But the reality is this, is that authenticity matters. And it doesn't matter just in the art world, right? It matters in, you know, any kind of collecting that you're doing. But even more than that, authenticity matters, according to James's letter, in our lives and in faith. That it's important that we are living and have an understanding of what is an authentic faith. And really the only way to determine authenticity is to do a study and and look and say, does the evidence that is presented match what should be seen in an authentic thing? And so if you're kind of wondering, okay, well, what do you mean by authenticity? I think it's one of those things we, got, we have a definition, but what specifically am I talking about? Well, I gave you some blanks in your worship guide if you want to fill those in today. But to be authentic means this, to be real, to be true, to be genuine. So it's the real deal. It's the genuine artifact. It is 100% what it says that it is. And this is important to our study in the book of James because in the book of James, James really talks about a big idea all throughout the five, what we have now of, of chapters, that, that we were looking at this idea of really what is authentic faith? 
What is real? What is true? What is saving faith? And the big idea that Pastor Brian introduced last week was, was this reality. That authentic faith is one not just marked by words and belief, but it's one that is marked with action. And the authenticity of our faith says everything about whether or not we are truly people who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And so in chapter two, James continues this discussion about authentic faith. And he does so by sharing what we're gonna look at, kind of three characteristics that give evidence to the fact that we as people or you as a person have an authentic faith in Jesus Christ. That you have a real faith, a genuine faith, a true faith, a faith that is seen over time with testing and evidence is the faith that we are, because you're here, I believe, aspiring to. And a faith that it's really important to make sure that we truly have. So if you'll stand with me, James chapter 2, we're going to go through the whole, uh, we're going to try to go through the whole chapter today. We're going to move fast through the first half, and we're going to kind of slow down starting in verse 14. So I want to read 14 through 17 as we begin our time today, because it's kind of a linchpin of some questions that James asked about our discussion today. And really what I want to do in this is uh, just kind of introduce this and then we'll, we'll go back to the beginning. Uh, but if you're new, we have a, a, just kind of a tradition of practice here that after the main text reading, we say this phrase, the very words, to distinguish God's word from my own. James chapter, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. You may be seated. So James, in that time, is asking some real questions, like we've been talking about already, right? You know, what is authentic faith? What is real? What is true faith? What is genuine faith? And so I want to look at three characteristics. I want to go back to James chapter one, and I want to begin kind of our observations through this chapter. So the first thing we see is this, is that one of the, one of the characteristics of an authentic faith is that authentic faith doesn't play favorites. That authentic faith doesn't play favorites. Look at what he says in verse one. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, show no partiality, show no favoritism. So don't treat certain people differently than you treat other people. And so what we see is he's really talking about some traditions that were around and that were, were, were uh, adapted to the local church from the Jewish faith in the synagogues where there were practices where that they would hold special places of honor for special people and certain groups. And what probably intended, really, what probably began with really good intentions, though James says has become unhealthy and sinful in the church. He says, show no partiality. It's this idea, stop doing what you're doing. So he's not talking about something that could happen. He's really talking about something that is happening. Believers were apparently judging people and treating them differently within the church based upon external factors like status, wealth, physical appearance, power, and influence. And based on that, they treated you differently 
in the context of the local church where Jesus had taught and worked really hard to make sure that there should be no distinctions. Look at verse 2. He talks about a practical way this is happening. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So apparently they were giving preference to those who had wealth, power, and influence apart, except indifferently than they were for other people. They were making distinctions that they should not have been making. And the result of this, he says, is, is that this partiality of favoritism is the result of a judgmental spirit and evil thoughts. So basically, there were people in the, the Jerusalem church, in the church that James is writing to, that says, said basically, listen, if somebody comes in and they look wealthy, we want to have them sit in the best place. Now, I know as you came in this morning, many of you were sat in a position from our ushers. I guarantee you, it had nothing to do with what you were wearing today. It was all about how can I help you find a seat? And can we give our ushers a hand? Because they have a really hard job. Every single week. And I listen, and I know you try really hard, but sometimes you're not very nice. Right? I know it's not your favorite seat. I know you guys weren't like, I want to sit on the front row this morning and do that. You guys were nice. Y'all were perfect. But sometimes, you know, it's just hard, right? That's not what was happening here. What was happening was people were coming in saying, you know what? I mean, that, guy, that, guy, that guy's got, you know, he owns this business or that, that guy has, he's got wealth. He's got power. So let's give them preferential treatment. And specifically, they were giving preferential treatment to the rich, and they were dis- discouraging the poor. They were discriminating against the poor. Here's, here's what he goes on saying in verse 5. He says, listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He said, listen, you're treating people differently, not because that's how they should be being treated, but because of your evil judgment and evil intention and desires. When in fact, he says that the poor have been given to us and have been chosen by God to inherit the kingdom just like everybody else. That there should be no distinction of rich and poor. There should be no preferential treatment in the local church between those who have and those who don't have. In fact, we should put focus on those who don't have, he would go on to say, uh, because what we see is that, that because they're forgotten so much, we need to make sure and remember those who are oftentimes the ones who are forgotten. He actually talked about this in the end of chapter 1 in James 1.27, where he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to to keep oneself unstained from the world. Why? So he's saying, okay, listen, don't treat people differently, but he's saying, hey, make sure you take care of the poor, the orphan and the widow. So is he speaking in kind of a double speak, or is he giving, which I believe he's giving intention and focus to groups that are often forgotten so that they will not be forgotten, and they will be treated with honor and dignity, the same way that sometimes those who have are treated. To look down on those who have less, or those who, who don't, don't have what we have, and to treat them differently, James is saying, is, is really antithetical to the character of God. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Romans 2, 11, Paul writes this. He says, for God shows no partiality. 
God doesn't distinguish based upon what you have and what you don't have. That everyone is invited into the family of God through faith in Jesus. And as his church, we should be living that out. But James says, listen, authentic faith doesn't play favorites, but you guys have been playing favorites. He says in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. He goes on to say, are, are not the rich who oppress you the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He says, listen, you have dishonored the poor because you have treated them differently. Proverbs 14.31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. It's not just that we've insulted and dishonored them. We've insulted and dishonored the one who has made them God. It says, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The way that we treat other people either honors or dishonors God as we honor or dishonor them. And he goes on to say, which I think is funny, he says, listen, you put all the focus on the rich people, but aren't they the ones who are causing you the most problems? You put all your attention on the wealthy people, the the influential people, but he goes on to say, aren't they the ones who are really actually opposing many times the work in the way of Jesus? And so he says, show no partiality. So here's a question I've been asking myself this week, and I've liked the answer sometimes, and I've not liked the answer other times, is do I play favorites? Do I have a tendency to view people and treat people and maybe approach people differently based upon what they have and what they don't have? The power, the influence, their ability to do something good for me. James says, listen, an authentic faith does not play favorites based upon the material, earthly things of a person. And then he continues to build on this. And here's the second thing if you're writing this down. Authentic faith not only doesn't play favorites, but authentic faith loves others as ourselves. Authentic faith loves others as ourselves. And he goes on in verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He says, okay, why this is important, why we shouldn't show partiality is because the royal law of God tells us we shouldn't. And the royal law he's talking about is what we would call the great commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked by the religious leaders of his day, what of all the commandments is the most important one? And for many of us, we know the answer because we've read this passage a hundred times. And he says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So everything rests upon the essential characteristic of authentic faith, which is to love God with all of all of what we are. And to love others, we love ourselves. So why should we not show partiality is because we have been told to love others as we love ourselves. And showing partiality actually breaks that law that God has given to us. He goes on to say in verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one one point has become guilty of all of it. For he says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If, 
you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. He's saying, listen, we can't pick and choose what makes us a lawbreaker and not. We can't take pride in, hey, I don't do these bad things, but I do these bad things. I heard uh, somebody put it this way one time, that the law of God is like a pane of glass. If it's broken, it's all broken. Right? You can't break a part of the glass. You can't like, you know, if you break glass, the, the glass is broken. It's kind of a, it's, a, it's a one or the other kind of thing. And so apparently they were playing a game kind of like we play sometime of, well, you know what? Yeah, I, I don't do that. I don't follow God in this way, but, but I'm not like these people, right? Like I don't murder, I don't commit adultery. Say, listen, if you break a part of the law, you're just as much a lawbreaker as the people you're pointing against. And when we show partiality and we don't love people as we love ourselves, as God has called us to, we are lawbreakers and we're guilty of breaking the entire law. And so he says that authentic faith is one, listen, that is not marked by partiality because it is marked by loving others as we love ourselves. So here's what he says in verse 12. He says, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of, mer- uh, law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, he comes back to this idea that an authentic faith is faith in action. He says, I want you to speak and act. That obedience must be, obedience must be part of our life. Live for him. Put, it, put our faith into action. He goes on to say, why? Because the, the, the command of God is not a burden. It's an actual blessing. So the question I'm going to ask myself again, I want to ask you today is this, is not only am I guilty of showing favoritism and partiality, but am I truly loving others as I love myself? Am I truly, truly prioritizing people as I would prioritize myself? Am I responding to people the way that I would want to be responded to? You know, am I giving focus and attention to others as I am giving focus and attention to me? That at the end of the day, that is a defining characteristic of authentic faith. He says, authentic faith doesn't play favorites. Authentic faith loves others as ourselves. And then he goes on to say this, that an authentic faith results in good works. That an authentic faith results in good works. Why is not showing partiality and favoritism Why is loving our neighbors ourself important? Because of the third thing we see here. Because of the big message of the book of James. That authentic faith results in good works. That when we show partiality, we're not showing good works and evidence of an authentic faith. That when we fail to love others as we love ourselves, we're we're not showing evidence of an authentic faith, that those are actually in contrast to what it means to truly be living out our faith in an authentic way. Now listen, we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be perfect. The, 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 the striving for perfection in our relationship with God only leads to despair and legalism or pride. Because what it, what it brings us to is either I can't be perfect enough so I feel horrible about myself or it ta- causes us to look at other people and say, well, I'm better than them so I'm probably pretty good. The goal's not perfection, but the goal is a life moved to obedience. 
And are we seeing these things grow in who we are? Because an authentic faith results in good works. We go back to verse 14, like we read at the beginning of of our time today. It says, For what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by itself, it does not, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James comes back again and doubles down on his big thesis, right? That faith is faith in action. Authentic faith is faith in action. Authentic faith results in good works. And he gives this example. He actually begins by asking two questions. He says, what good is it, brothers? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Then he, double, then he adds a question, can that faith really save him? Is that really, truly an authentic faith? And then he gives an example of how that played out in real life would really make no sense. And he says, suppose you come upon a person in need and you say to him, hey, you know what? I wish you the best. Have a great day. But you don't meet their need. Is that really worth anything? And the, the insinuation he's making in these rhetorical questions is, is no. That a faith without works is really not worth much. And then a faith without works that is not marked and resulting in good works in our life is actually not a faith that can save him and save us. Well, so this should start if you are really reading and listening, this should start to create a little bit of tension. In our life. Because James is answering the question, he's saying, listen, that not every type of faith is really good or even saving. It's kind of interesting. Look at verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. He says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James just doubles down on this idea. He says, listen, there are some out there that say, listen, I've I've got faith. He's like, okay, great. Show me your faith. I'll show you mine by evidence. I'll show you my faith by the good works that I do in response to that. So we kind of see there's these two ideas of faith that are floating around that James is talking about. One is, is what I would just simply say is faith without works. That is simply intellectual, you know, uh, an intellectual exercise, intellectual affirmation to the truth of God, the basic truth of God. And the other one is faith that leads to and results in a life that is marked by good works. Well, and James goes on to say, listen, you believe that God is one. He takes the, the most foundational premise of the Bible, that there's one God, and God is one. So listen, okay, you, you, you believe that. It's great. But did you know that even, even the demons believe that? Even the demons believe rightly about who God is, but it's not a faith that is authentic and saving. See, faith apart from works, he goes on to say, is really useless. And then he goes on to give two more examples of this. 
James 2 verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So if you don't know the story in the Old Testament, God called a man named Abraham and Abraham and and his wife had no children, but God said, listen, through your lineage, I'm going to, to, to make your ancestors as many as the stars in the sky. And I'm going to give birth to a nation, and through that nation, the entire world will be blessed, that the Messiah, Jesus, would come from the lineage of Abraham. Abraham is is finally given a son, and God, at a point, tells him, I want you to go to a mountain, and I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to kill your son. God was testing his faith in that moment. Well, they get up there, and Abraham was willing to follow God in obedience, as as crazy as that may sound to us, because he trusted God over the circumstance he found himself in. And when they got to the top of the mountain, God provided a lamb as a sacrifice and didn't require Abraham to sacrifice his son. So Abraham is kind of known as the father of the Jewish faith. And he was a man that was known for pleasing God. And living for God. And, he, and, he, and James here goes on to say, and kind of talks about it. He says, listen, was not our father Abraham justified by works? Was it not his works that really made him the person that we look up to today? And then he goes on in verse 24 to say this. says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let me say that again. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Then he goes on to give another example of of Abraham. And in the same way was not also Abraham the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James writes here that a person is justified that an authentic faith is one that is works and not faith alone. So if we're reading this and we're being honest, this should create some tension for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Because what James is writing here seems to be in contrast to what the rest of the New Testament teaches, specifically the teachings of the Apostle Paul. So Paul, when he talks about saving faith, authentic faith, he writes things like this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So Paul says that authentic faith, a saving faith, is not a result of works. But James just said that a person is justified by works and not just by faith alone. Paul also writes in Romans 3, 23, he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. But James again in verse 24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the question is, what is a true authentic saving faith? 
are James and Paul in conflict with each other? Are they contradicting each other when it comes to the understanding of what is true, genuine, authentic, saving faith? See, for, for, for a lot of people, this one example is a place where they get so tripped up that it makes it hard to truly trust the Bible as perfect. Because what it would appear is that the Bible's contradicting itself. That Paul's saying, you don't need works to be saved. But James is saying that faith alone is not enough. So what is it? Come back next week. No, I'm just kidding. Like, we're not going to leave it there, right? It's like, you know, but for some of us, like, we've grown up in church and you're like, well, of course, I get this. Like, this is new. But I'm not talking to you in this moment. Because there are people that we know, there are people in this room who that is a struggle, is holding in tension the, the faith in God that saves us and the works of God that, that we're, we're called to do. And getting those two things right is so important. Because when we get them wrong, it creates this weird thing of this, this crazy understanding of what true faith really is. So how do we understand that? Because here's the thing. James and Paul are not contradicting each other. In fact, they're actually complementing each other. But to have a true understanding of authentic, real, genuine faith, you need what Paul is saying, and you also need what James is saying. So let's resolve a little bit of the tension. Like, how can we put these two things and hold these two things in a right way? Well, a couple of things I want us to just kind of think about. First is this. Is, is that when we look at the context of Paul's writing and the context of James's writing, who they were writing to, what they were addressing, why they were writing this, we see that the context reveals this, is that James and Paul are focusing on different types of people. They're focusing on different types of people at different stages of that person's life. Paul, when he is writing, is focusing on the unsaved person, the person who is not yet a follower and believer of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, Paul is trying to explain what it means to be saved. So how am I saved? How am I forgiven of sin? How am I brought into the family of God? He's saying, how do I make that become a reality for me? James, on the other hand, is writing to followers of Jesus, Christians, who have already been saved. And what he wants to focus on and what he wants to tell them really is this, is what does it mean now as a follower of Jesus to live a life that's reflective of an authentic faith? So Paul's saying this is, what, this is how we move into a relationship with God. James is saying this is how we live because of a relationship with God. And they have two different focuses. Second thing is this, is, is I think they're confronting two different issues. They're confronting two different issues in when they wrote this and why they wrote these different things. So Paul is oftentimes in the, the, his letters, he is correcting a wrong view of works. He's correcting a wrong view that people had of what good works were supposed to be all about and why they were important. See, Paul's writing in light of like a false teaching that was going around that said that you have to do all these different things in order to be a follower of Jesus, in order to be saved. 
namely circumcision, following the Old Testament law and all these different things, kind of stuff. So he's writing to people who are asking the question, how can I be saved? And they were being taught wrongly by others that to be saved, to enter into a relationship with God, you have to not only have faith, but you've got to do all this stuff on the front end to hopefully make yourself worthy enough for God to accept and forgive. James, on the other hand, is not addressing a wrong view of works. He's, uh, he's addressing a wrong view of faith. And the, the view that was, he was confronting was this, is that all I have to have is intellectual assent, just a, a mind acknowledgement. And then I can live however I want to because it's all about just me saying, yes, God, Jesus, got it, we're good. I don't have to live any certain way. And so Paul's saying, no, listen, works do not get you into a relationship with God. And James is saying, listen, but works should come because of your relationship with God. So they're talking to two different types of people in two different places, and they're addressing things differently, two different issues. And the third thing is this, is that they're using, I believe, the same word with different meanings. And that's where we people get kind of hung up. They're using the same word with different meanings. Here's what I mean by that. So I was trying to give examples of words, and I really couldn't because that weren't like this so obvious. But this was going to be obvious because we have like it's a little bit of time left. So in our English language, there are certain words that when we say them, the same word can mean different things. Right? You can all think of some. So growing up in the 80s and 90s, I still use the word cool a lot. Like, yeah, that's cool. Right? When I say, hey, that's cool, or you're cool, what I'm talking about is that that's really good. That's awesome. Like that, yeah, it's a great thing. But I also might say, hey, listen, it's a little cool in here. And what I'm not meaning is that it's great, it's awesome. I'm meaning that the temperature of the air is on the lower side. So in one context, I can say the word cool and mean something here, and I can use the word cool and mean something different. Right? We all do that. The word rock. Again, 80s, 90s, right? You rock, okay? What I'm saying is, you're awesome. Pick up the rock. I don't mean to go pick you up because you rock. What I mean is to go pick up like a pebble on the ground. The same word in the different context means different things. Well, I think Paul and James are using the word justify, but they're using that word, even though it's the same, with different meanings because the word justify can mean two different things. The word justify can mean, biblically, to make right. Meaning this is that you are justified by faith in Jesus. That means you are made right with God. But also, to justify something means to prove it to be true. So you may say to me, I think the Dallas Cowboys are the worst football team in history. And I would say to you, justify that. And then you would point to the last 30 years, right? <laughs> and I would not have much of an argument, to be honest with you, right? Justifying that case is saying what is being proven true because of the evidence I'm giving. The same thing with the word works. Paul is, is addressing works that an unsaved person is doing, trying to get God's love. And he's saying, we can't do that. That's not what it's about. But James is saying, listen, because we have been loved by God, we should be doing things that show evidence of that. 
So in reality, it's not conflicting. And it's so important we understand that. So how do we reconcile these two things? And I'll be very clear on this. I want you, some of you guys to go, Zach was preaching like a different gospel and like Brian's got to come back. Like, you know, anyway, all this kind of stuff, right? I'm not. I'm trying to clarify for us something that for many of us, we take for granted. But no people or maybe have experienced this on our own where we've wrestled with the idea of how do we hold these two things that seem to create tension in the right way. So how do we understand the role of faith and works based upon not just what James says here, but also what the rest of the Bible tells us? Well, I want to say it this way. That the root of salvation, so the root, the thing that locks us in, is faith in Jesus alone. That the root of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how religious you are. It's not about how much better you are than your neighbor. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the root of our salvation. But the fruit of our salvation, the fruit of authentic faith, are good works. So authentic faith is based on Jesus Christ and the work that he has done alone, but then should be revealed, evidenced, proven authentic, true, and genuine by the workings of our life. And so when Paul says, look at Abraham, it wasn't Abraham's obedience that would save him. It was his faith in God that was made evidence in his obedience that showed the authenticity of his faith. The same is true for you. The same is true for me. And when we get those things mixed up, it warps our view of who we are, who God is, and it warps our view of what it truly means to have an authentic faith. See, an authentic faith is based on faith in Jesus Christ and his finished works alone. But it's made evident through our life and the fruit that we bear. So James, going back to 2, 14 through 17, asked the two questions. And I love how Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase of the Bible he wrote kind of puts these two things in the right place. We're gonna end with this. He says this in 2, 14 through 17. He says, dear friends, do you think that you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? He goes on to say in verse 17, isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? The authentic faith is we keep coming back to is faith in action. So here's the question I have for me. The question I have for you today is, is your life evidenced by an authentic faith? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus and his finished work alone to make you right before God? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? By doing that, the Bible says you have been and will be saved. But if you have, is there evidence in your life of growing obedience through the workings of what you're doing, how you're treating people, 
how you're loving people. James would say an authentic faith is faith that is belief in action. And so if you've not made those decisions, you've not put your faith in Jesus in those ways, I want to encourage you during this time of response to take whatever next step you need to take. Today, you've been trusting on your works and your goodness to get you okay with God. And the reality is you can't do that. Because your works and goodness, just like mine, would never be enough. But on the flip side, if you're just satisfied with living your life however you want to, because one day, a long time ago, you just said, hey, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But there's really no fruit. You're not living that abundant life that God has called you to. So what steps do we need to take today? How are we living our life? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful for men who you use like Paul and James to, God, write down words and truth, God, inspired from your Holy Spirit to them that tells us, hey, listen, this is how to rightly understand what it means to have faith and live out faith in Jesus. And so, God, my prayer is that today, that for my life and for the lives of everyone here, everyone watching online, everybody's watching this at another time, would, God, that we would be able to answer those questions. That do I truly have an authentic faith? Have I put my faith and my trust in Jesus and the work that he has done to make me right with God? And then is that being evidenced through a life of good works, not to earn his love, but because he's loved. And so God, if we need to correct our life, correct our thinking on any of those things today, I pray in this time that we would do it. And so God, we just give you the freedom to move and work however you would. It's in Jesus' name.